Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. book lovers, and welcome back to New Books in Language. I'm Lee Pierce. I use she, they pronouns. I'm an assistant professor of rhetoric and communication at SUNY Geneseo and the host of the channel. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Ruth Lays, Professor Emeritus of Johns Hopkins University, to discuss her recent book from the University of Chicago Press, The Ascent of Affect, Genealogy and Critique. The Ascent of Affect focuses on emotion research since World War II and the ongoing debate between, on the one hand, those that argue for emotions as intentional states uh, and meaning of emotions, but have trouble explaining their presence in non-human animals. And then, on the other hand, those that argue for the universality of emotions, but struggle when the question turns to meaning. Dr. Lay's book develops chronologically looking at key figures in the world of emotion science, finally arriving at the potentially misleading appeal of neuroscience for thinkers in the humanities. The Ascent of Affect is an absolute tour de force of intellectual history and a deeply, sorry, I can't talk today, and a deeply stimulating read. And I am so excited to welcome Dr. Lays to the show. Dr. Lays, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Wonderful. It's so great to have you. Uh, you're over in Maryland, I understand. I am from Maryland, but you can tell from my voice that I am British in origin. I grew up in Britain, uh, actually Scotland and then London, and did my undergraduate training in the UK before coming to America, where I furthered my education by doing a PhD in the history of science. My family loves to talk about how the fact that we're Scottish. It's like our most favorite thing about us, even though I think we're only like 30% Scottish, but it's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very big talking point in my conversation. Well, I'd love to hear more about you um, and how this wonderful book came to be, because this is this is um, the third or fourth in a series of these of these kinds of works looking at certain key terms that have developed and what you call sort of the wrong picture of things. Yes. Um, I, as an intellectual historian, which is what I call myself more than even a historian of science, I focus on the human sciences, not on physics, uh, but on the human sciences like psychology, psychiatry, psychoanalysis, and so on, and the neurosciences particularly. And I'm very uh, often very intrigued by well, I should add that in the human sciences, there aren't very many established models or paradigms, as we call them, that govern how everybody works. There are dominant paradigms, and part of my work is about whether those dominant paradigms are correct, but there nearly always is a dispute. And I'm very interested in the fact that the of looking at issues and areas where there is a major dispute going on um, and tracing back to how the problems were formulated uh, and where the conflicts began, and then tracing forward up to the present to show how those debates play, have played out over time. And in the last book uh, on the emotions, the debate has centered very crucially on the question of, are there basic emotions? What are they? If there are any, how should we think about them? And if there aren't basic emotions as formulated by a very dominant paradigm, what is the alternative? That's essentially what my book is about. And um, as a historian, 
I, I understand from talking to you in a preliminary way, Lee, that uh, communications uh, theorists are very interested in this concept of affect, which they distinguish from the emotions. But from the mm-hmm. perspective of a historian, that distinction, I would say two things, that distinction is fairly recent. In the past, words like affect, emotion, feeling, all were used more or less interchangeably. And secondly of all, I'm not sure the distinction is ultimately valid. So if you'd like, I could go back and talk first about the emotions and this basic emotions model in order to come back at the end to the question of affect, how it relates to the basic emotions and what's at stake in that distinction, if there is a real distinction there. Would that work for you? Yeah, that'd be great. And if, if you would, I don't know um, if you feel it, because it's not really the topic of the book. It's more of its jumping off point. But you make the argument in the book that that everything changes around World War II-ish, because again, we can't really predict these things. We're just kind of using them as a convenient name for something that we're, when, when things start to change. And you talk about how the Freud, the model of the Freudian unconscious had been very prevalent until around World War II. And then we start to notice a, a shift that also coincides with the evolution of sort of this computer processing, higher brain, lower brain model. Yes. And so I'd also be really interested to hear about what the model of the Freudian unconscious looked like, because I think if you don't know what that is, it's hard to understand how different the way we think about emotions after World War II really is. So... The basic emotions theory that got established, very eventually it became the dominant way of thinking about the emotions, made these claims about the correlation or the character, the, the existence of characteristic facial expressions, characteristic physiological and autonomic responses in relation to each specific claimed to be basic emotion. Now, the trouble with that is that it turned out not to be true. It took many, many mm. years for it to become clear that the kinds of tight relationship between facial expressions, let's say, and these basic emotions um, could not be proven. Mm. And so over time, the theory has been moderated or revised so that now in its very latest version, the theory is something like this. There are basic emotions, a few of them, but we have to think about the emotions in terms of numerous component parts, no single one of which is necessary for any single instance of an emotion. And that includes, surprisingly, the feeling. So I could be happy, but not actually feel happy, according to this theory. Not because Freud said, well, it's because you're not really happy or you're really feeling angry, a kind of conflictual model like that, but simply because feeling is just one of many, many components that make up the Mm. emotions. And the correlations between all these components are held to be very sensitive to context. So you can start to see it's going to be very hard to pin any of that down because contexts are so specific. They vary so much. So I'm talking to you, Lee. What are my emotions right now? Well, I want to be polite. I want to be helpful. I want to sound articulate. How would you rate my emotion in terms of basic emotions? Am I a a mix of happy and anxious? Am I a mix of, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's become something like, now you see it, now you don't. From the critic's point of view, you could say, that's the situation. Now you see it, now you don't. That's a, a very short 
summary of the situation today. Now, are there alternatives to this model of the discharge? I should have, I think I said earlier that the idea is that we involuntarily express our emotions, which well up inside us, almost, you know, without, like there are passions. But we do have what Paul Ekman, the great theorist of this, um, called display rules. We have conventions that make sure that we're not always exploding in anger or dancing with joy when we feel it, just because we happen to feel it, we learn how to behave in public. But the idea was that when we're alone, then it's when the authentic, true, genuine emotions have the chance to display themselves on our faces, if only they could be recorded with an invisible camera and so on, which is what was done. But that model, as I say, there's pretty much, I think, strong, convincing evidence that the model doesn't hold up. So what is the alternative? There has always been alternatives. And the most important alternative is to think in terms of the emotions as essentially about meaning. The basic emotions theory, which imagines these basic emotions welling up inside us, are claims about the involuntary nature of our emotions. And you can see how very popular that is. You know, I didn't mean to kill that person. My anger was, I was so angered by his behavior that I stabbed him. Whereas Mm -hmm. the alternative model puts a huge emphasis on the meaning side of the emotions. Namely, when I'm happy, I'm happy about something. When I'm sad, Ah. I'm sad that my mother died. When I'm angry, I'm angry that my partner behaved didn't well, and so on and so forth. There could be multiple, um, in a Freudian point of view, conflicting objects. I am angry with my professor because I'm really angry with my father, but I also love my father. So the Freudian Mm. unconscious is an intentionalist claim, but it's also a dynamic, conflictual dynamic picture of human behavior. The basic emotion theory is not a dynamic one, and it's not very conflictual. As you, I think, said when we were having a kind of pre-interview discussion, the idea is it's kind of additive. Okay, so you're happy but you're a little bit angry, so throw in like a soup, the ingredient anger, and that will explain why you feel both at the same time. It's not a very conflictual Mm. or dynamic model. So philosophers have understood for a long time that it's important to not forget that emotions are intentional states. And that was very often tied to the idea that, well, humans are particularly important here, and that's because intentional states are tied to language. That's a huge topic in its own right. I can tell you that I'm happy because I have language and I can say I'm happy because it's my birthday today, etc., etc. And so that left question, what about non-human animals? Don't they have intentional states? Those of us who are animal lovers think they are. They do. I think my cat wants me to let her out uh, of the (laughs) kitchen door and I read her behavior accordingly. But um, to cut a long story short, there have always been these intentionalists. And what the story of the scientific study of the emotions post-war period is the story story, in my opinion, and in my book, of the rise of this basic emotions model and its huge success because it's so fit in with our fundamental assumptions about genuineness of emotions. It fit in with PET scanning, imaging technologies. You could use posed expressions to, as it were, activate the brain for somebody who wasn't even asked what they were feeling. You could just short circuit that and look at the brain. But the good news is, from my point of view, that there have always been scientific opponents, not just philosophical philosophical criticisms Mm. of that model, but scientific. And in my book, I make a lot of the work of a man called Alan Fridland, who was a student of Paul Ekman, the basic emotion theorist, but who, as it were, saw the light Mm. and wrote, I think, a superbly brilliant book in 1994, which was a massive critique, very detailed critique 
of the basic emotions model. And during my work, I eventually found my way to Fridland. It took a while because surprisingly for people who aren't within the sciences, scientists are just as selective in their citations as humanists are. (laughs) And uh, if you don't like what Fridland said, you don't cite him. So um, it was almost by accident that I found a reference to his work and I immediately contacted him and we've enjoyed a very, very fruitful, mostly email exchanges over the years. And his argument is simply and he, his book, he's an evolutionist, and his book is very much about animals, uh, non-human animals, as well as humans. And it's basically the idea that our facial movements, let's not call them facial expressions, because if you say facial expressions, you mean expressing something. What are they expressing? Well, these inner right. emotions that we can't pin down. So he focuses, he became an expert on what's called electromyography of the face, the study of the minute muscle movements of the face, which is a highly technical skill. But he developed the argument that facial movements or displays, which also occur in animals, behavior displays, are intentional, strategic things. Mm. He was influenced by what was called at the time in the 70s, the new ethology that argued that we don't display our intentions or behaviors, let's say, or our emotions at all times. It's not strategic to do so. Therefore, what was called the readout theory, the basic emotions theory is what's called a readout theory. You look at me, I express my emotion and you read it completely simply, directly, because Mm -hmm. I'm authentically displaying what I feel. And that's the norm. Well, the alternative is no. (laughs) We're intentional creatures. We're very strategic. We can put on poker faces when we have to. And in fact, our faces are social all the way down. It's not true that when we're alone, we somehow discover, stripped of all culture, our authentic inner selves. We're entirely a function of our inmixing of our biology and our culture such that when we're alone, I talk to the TV and I know what a TV is and I belong. I'm a Brit who's now lived in America for many years. I talk back at it, etc., etc. So you could say that the battle was joined between the basic emotion theorists and the alternative, which we might call cognitive or was called cognitivist because it implied the importance of cognition and meaning and categories and concepts. So the battle, you might say, was joined between the basic emotion theorists and somebody like Fridland. We're talking 1990s. But in another sense, it wasn't joined because the dominant paradigm was so powerful Mm. that it sort of overrode the alternative. So here we are now in 2020. and My book came out in 2017. It has received quite a lot of attention, for which I'm very grateful. I I think that in some ways, the basic emotions theorists are on the back foot, but Mm. they will not give up. They are not giving up. Nobody ever does in these debates. Eventually, the paradigms. I'm not even sure that this paradigm shift will occur. I think the debate will continue. Now, I'm ready to talk about affect and sure, affect let's do theory. It. Is that good? Yeah, that was fabulous. A group of people, and I gather that communications theorists are interested in this, who are in political science, political theory, but also the arts. Mm-hmm. In the 1990s, at precisely the moment that Fridland published his book, became very uh, discontented, and understandably so, with political theory, let's say, in which rational choice theory was the dominant way of thinking about the mind. The mind, in you know, when we make our choices in the world, we survey and look out, uh, review all the possible choices that 
are available to me, let's say, when I want to choose a new car. And I go out and I study all those options and I choose the best one on the basis of that enormous effort at studying. Well, the answer is it's not true, of course. Mm. We use what are called heuristics. We go on the basis of what our late, our best friend experienced or the previous car we had and so on and so forth. So the rational choice theorists were always wrong. And right. they tended to offer a very disembodied account of the mind. And in reaction against all of that, and I understand communications theorists feel that a lot of the rhetoric and communications of today's world have been co-opted by all sorts of people um, that they don't approve of or think are saying the right thing. In reaction mm -hmm. against this, and this is where the mistake happened, they sort of gave up on the mind altogether. And they sure, said, yeah. since the mind is this rational thing disembodied from the body, let's go for the body. Mm. So the criticism of that is they just, as we say, I like to say, reify the body, thematize the body separate from the mind. Instead of understanding, which people like me claim, is that we are intentional creatures, we make meaning, and we're highly embodied both. So the new affect theorists came along and said, look, let's imagine, because I think it is largely imaginary, that there's thing, this thing called affect. It's not exactly emotions because the emotions are basic emotions and they're categories and that's what scientists say. And it's we're talking about something much more fundamental than that. Much It's pre-categories. It's pre-concepts. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's what is it? Well, it's called intensity. It's a kind of force. And it's another of those situations where I think now you see it and now you don't. The affect theorists were coming out of reading a lot of French philosophy mm -hmm. about which we could talk, but I don't know that it's necessary. But here's the thing. So they began to make a distinction between affect and the emotions because the emotions were what scientists talked about, these basic emotions, and they didn't approve of that. They didn't approve of the rational mind theorists. So they're going to talk about affect. But here's right. the thing. Okay. The crucial wager of my book is that the new affect theorists and the basic emotion theorists are saying the same thing. They mm -hmm. are both in the camp of those who think that emotions or affects are about something that does not have meaning. Mm -hmm. They are in that sense what I call non-intentionalists. And that's where the battle is in my view. I have a lot to say about the scientists who attempted bravely, uh, in my view, before Fridland to defend the intentionalist position. Mm -hmm. But it is a difficult position. It is difficult. The question of intentionality is philosophically difficult, and it is very difficult to figure out how to, what we say, operationalize it for science. How do you make meaning subject to the norms of science and experimentation? Fridland found a way by studying whole animals in more or less natural settings, what's called, called ethology, and studying the movements of the face. And he made no hypotheses about the inner states and mental mechanisms and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So the battle is joined, in my view, between the intentionalists who emphasize meaning and the non-intentionalists who include both the basic emotions theorists whose scientific empirical claims are very problematic in my view, as well as their theoretical claims, and the new affect theorists who are extraordinarily popular. It's a bit of a puzzle to me why they are so popular, but I will say this. This is another crucial piece of this puzzle. If you are an affect theorist today, mm -hmm. you are anti-intentionalist. You're basically a kind of materialist, mm -hmm. which is to say that you emphasize the body. And when you do that, 
It is not surprising that the affect theorists who've coming out of French philosophy and so on, nevertheless make use of the basic emotion science a lot of the time. Sure. Hmm. Um, and you're, so you're anti, you're anti-intentionalist. You don't think meaning is important. Let meaning, you know, go. You think the body is crucial. And this is a crucial piece of my argument. If you give up on meaning, you give up on belief and debate and argument in favor of identity. What matters is not that I believe X, Y, or Z would make a better political system, but that I feel something. But supposing I like coffee and you like tea, who are you and how could you dispute my liking for coffee? It would start to feel a bit weird when taste (laughs) and preference is the name Uh of the game. Because it's just a matter of preference. And you cannot tell me what I feel. I feel it. You may tell me I shouldn't feel it, but I do feel it. And in a sense, we let, you know, I I love cherry trees. I once had a friend visit my garden when the cherry tree was in full bloom. And when I extolled the tree to her, she said she never liked that color. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I often joke that gardening is one of the areas where we can have prejudices without any disgrace. Sure. <laughs> because mm-hmm. that I right. like daffodils and you don't really doesn't matter <laughs> in terms of hurting anybody. So I think the move to affect and to feeling as a completely bodily state without issues of meaning turns out to be a terrible dead end. In fact, mm-hmm. the political theorists themselves say that what's at stake, especially those on the left, is we should just do what the right does, which is manipulate feelings because they're nothing about meaning. So we sh- shouldn't make arguments. We should just, how do we manipulate fe- Who does the manipulating? I'd like to know. They're not coherent on this topic because, of course, they think democracy is better than fascism. They mm. actually have political views, but their theory doesn't allow them to use arguments in favor of democracy because those arguments are not important. Only feelings Mm -hmm. are. So we don't Mm -hmm. debate our views. We just feel. In today's political culture, it's very easy to see the appeal of that. I mean, a lot of people seem to be voting against their own economic interests right now in supporting, Mm -hmm. let's say, Trump. And it's hard not to say, well, they're just doing it out of gut feelings. They like the man and so on. My argument there is, no, they just have bad reasons. They have reasons. They have arguments, but they're not good ones, in my opinion. Or that's what you could argue, that they're not good ones. Let's have the argument about, because they do have reasons. So it's very easy. Well, and in a sense, and in a sense, all reasons are good in the sense they make sense to the person who has the reasons. Yes, they do. And they they may be incoherent. They may not really make sense. Um, Right, right. Adherent is probably the better word than good or bad. Yeah, adherent. Mm -hmm. They, 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 one of the ways in which arguments work is, is, isn't it, is to show a logical contradiction or to show a fallacy right. uh, to, mm-hmm. to use our minds in order to make the case. But you're right. Ultimately, we're trying to make a persuasive case. And ultimately, that's rhetoric. And how we do that may very well involve a whole slew of factors that include bodily movements, facial expressions, sincerity of tones, voice. My voice is very often praised, my speech, because it's British Americans mm-hmm. seem to like it, but A, yes. I can't take any credit. And secondly, <laughs> right. sometimes, sometimes I sound like 
being hoity-toity like the queen and people take mm-hmm. offense when I mean it, don't mean it at all, you know. So but all of these factors are clearly very important in self-presentation, which is something that you work on in public speaking. Um, yes. But it, you just don't want, in my opinion, a huge mistake to lose track of argumentation and belief and signification and meaning. And in fact, you can't live that way. You just can't, you know. Well, and this really. is one of the things, yeah, yes. this is one of the things where I've never been attracted to affect theory because it seems like what, like, Number one, there were only ever good affects. So you never yes. hear about affect doing anything bad. So anytime we find affect, it's always good, which that always struck me as strange because there have to be bad affects. And then second, if the affect is just doing the work and my brain gets no say in what's happening, that seems like a really bad model of the world to me because it allows no space for me to intervene in my emotions and say, just because I'm feeling some way doesn't mean I have to act or think that way, or maybe that's not really the way I'm feeling. You know what I mean? Like there's no room for me to sort through that complexity as an intentional creature. And I do not find that appealing. I found it. I don't understand why everyone else hops on board. I mean, I do understand, but it never struck me as a better alternative. Right. Yes. So I I do think I, I sort of feel two things simultaneously. One, I sort of understand where the affect theorists are coming from. Yeah, I do too, I think. You know, one of the arguments that affect theorists are very influenced by, and this goes back to questions of meaning and signification and intention, is that they're very influenced by the idea that we humans have been very hubristic, have been taken ourselves far too seriously mm-hmm. and have not behaved mm-hmm. well to non-human animals. And therefore, they want to show the continuity between humans and non-humans, and that means depreciating language which for them means depreciating signification and meaning. And that Mm -hmm. takes us into very deep waters about the relation of mentation, mindedness to concepts and language. And I don't think we should go down that path today, but it is something I try to address in my book. I paid a lot Mm -hmm. of attention to the philosophy of mind because those issues are so crucial. But, you know, I can sympathize up to a point, but, you know, I think, and I used to, when I was still teaching, I used to stress this to students, it's incredibly important to both emphasize the continuity between humans and non-human animals, for example, that we are evolved creatures and so on and so forth, but also the discontinuities. When the human brain evolved, it's a great mistake to think that we have reptile brains in our brains that are unchanged <laughs> from yes. Paleolithic times. The, the, and on top the, of it is the neocortex. It's not like that. It's not a, I, and I'm not the only person to say that. Our braininess as humans is something like an icing on a cake. You know, it's not like that at all. All is a global change. And it did create this difference, which is the question of our kind of language is a specific kind of language, our ability to create language um our ability to communicate in the way that we do. And I think that to lose track of that would be a mistake, just as it would be to lose track of the continuities. And I often used to say, look, I'm a great cat lover. The fact that I don't agree with the affect theorist doesn't make me a a vicious animal hater. You know, you can't derive the correct, this is another way of putting it, I, don't, I think it's a mistake to think that you can derive the correct political position from having the correct semi-quasi-scientific theoretical view of the affects. It doesn't work right. that way. Historically, mm-hmm. that's never the case. You know, One time it used to be the correct progressive position was to think of homosexuality as biological, as another time it was held to be the incorrect position because it veered on sure. racism and so on. These things are very, very um, mutable. 
And um, so I, I feel that the affect theorists have gone into a, a very, very problematic area, but it's extraordinarily uh, influential. Mm. It, and it bears, too, on issues in art so that the issue becomes how does a painting make me feel mm. rather than what does a painting mean? Right. So mm. I'm looking at a painting by Manet and it makes me a painting of a, a luncheon scene and it makes me think of my father. Is that related to the question of the meaning of the painting? No. And how do we get at the intentions behind the painting? By looking at it. We do it in no different way than we do it looking at your intentions or my intentions when we're face-to-face, in my view. It's a matter of figuring it out. In the case of painting, you have to do a lot of work to understand the context and so on. Um, so you get an incredible amount of art theory imagining that what's at stake is just how it makes me feel. Right. Um, and therefore, affect theory is very helpful because it has nothing to do with meaning. So mm-hmm. what I feel is all that matters. So th- that, that, in a nutshell, is really where this book goes. It, it undertakes this historical work in order to make the case that these are the issues. And to, I have, as you know, uh, a chapter that was originally published as a paper quite a mm-hmm. while ago on the turn to affect, and I offer my critique of it. But I yes, end the that book. Is, that's, that's how I found the book was through that paper. Yes. So even though the paper was published earlier, but I didn't find the paper until the same time the book came out. So I was late to the game on that one. Well, that's, you know, there was a certain amount of exchange about it because um, uh, my intervention, there weren't very many people at that time blowing a whistle, as it were, on the new ethic (laughs) theory. And it's remained very controversial. I mean, here it is uh, nearly 10 years later from when I published that essay and the world is flooded absolutely flooded with papers on affect that um, seem to me to make again and again the same mistakes. So um, it's like, that's what being a scholar is like. <laughs> you you get yes, your, yes, readers, uh-huh. your readers one at a time <laughs> and um, you're happy when somebody like yourself, I'm happy when somebody like yourself out of the blue contacts me and has read my book and has gotten something out of it. I'm really pleased. I have quite modest expectations well, it is and, shocking because, I mean, I'm not a scientist. And so listen, watching you, I thought, very systematically and fairly dismantle just study after study. I mean, it just goes on and on. And just when I think there couldn't possibly be more studies, you find even more studies and you dismantle those and just point out the faulty, some basic faulty things about science, like causation, correlation isn't causation and things that I kind of know. And to then find out that this, I, I just kind of, by reading this book, would assume that science would have just been like, you're right. It doesn't work. <laughs> We're going to change everything. And I, no. I know that's not how anything works, but it is no. it is shocking to hear it didn't make more waves because I would think this would have been a kind of a like a big wake up call as a book. Yes, I agree. You know, there's this famous philosopher of science, Thomas Kuhn, K-U-H-N. Structure of Scientific Revolution. Right. He died a long time ago. And he used to argue that these what we call paradigms, these models shifted when the anomalies became too large to ignore. And it's an interesting question. Uh, one of my chapters is called Paradigm Shift or Status Quo. <laughs> and right. It's a uh-huh. real open question whether there will be a paradigm shift, because as I show in my book, the basic emotion theory, 
uh, setting aside the affect theorists, who, as I say, are related to the basic emotion theorists by sharing this in- non-intentionality position. But um, the basic emotion theorist theories appeal to very deep, deeply held beliefs and intuitions that are yes. difficult to dislodge. This idea that when we're overcome by our emotions, we're overcome by passions that we can't control, or when we express our emotions at their most intense, that's when we're most genuine. Or um, that PET scanning can show you that the brain parts light up in this particular, or activate in this particular way. Uh, you know, and even when you come along, somebody comes along critically and says, "Well, yes, you said the amygdala, which is a, a, a group of cells in the in the brain, are activated when people fear." experience fear, but oh my goodness, I'm sorry, it also activated when they feel happy. Oh, uh, when they're sad too, you know, starts to, t- when the whole thing starts to crumble in your hands, you'd think that people would get um, disturbed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not sure that that is happening. It may be that the basic emotions are somewhat on the defensive now. I end my book with a debate that occurred in 2000. 15, I think it was, it was happening when I was drafting the end of my book, in which Alan Fridland, who had been rather silent after he published his book, he basically mm-hmm. sort of withdrew. I mean, he, there's a lot of nastiness that goes on behind the scenes in the sciences, you know, papers that won't get published because the editors don't want to publish that sort of thing or and so on. So Alan had been rather uh, silent, but he's had a kind of revived attention. And um, he was invited to debate with two followers of Ekman and a a lovely, very smart scientist called Jim Russell, who did something very extraordinary. When Alan published his book in 1994, Jim Russell had just done an incredibly important critique of the cross-cultural studies on the emotions that claimed to show that emotions were universal states, that people across the world all had the same emotions. Mm -hmm. And Alan asked whether he could publish that report in his book with Alan's name as the author, and he did. Jim Russell did that. And Jim Russell has his own views about the emotions, which I could describe, but I won't. And he and Alan and the followers of Ekman had this debate. And it was a fascinating exchange. And I would say it was a kind of standoff in the sense that the different sides didn't persuade each other <laughs> to change yeah, their right, positions. Right. Um, and that rather rarely happens. I mean, I haven't changed my position because people have you know, contested it. <laughs> um, but it, it, that does happen in small increments, those kinds of changes, like yourself, you know, you didn't change so much, but you were persuaded that some something about this picture of affect wasn't right. Um, yeah. And I, I, you know, I like to say we get our readers one at a time. And that's true. It's a, the scholarly world is an enormous international world now and podcasts are new and tweeting is new and, um, you know, all these media, social medias are new, but for people like myself who grew up without any of them, we were content, you know, when we, somebody would write us a letter, sure, mm-hmm. <laughs> snail mail, <laughs> and say, I've read your book and, uh, you know, I've got the following questions. Now it happens much more quickly. And that's great. That's great, a great advantage of the internet. But it does happen slowly. 
these changes. Well, well, and I think you point to a really important tension, which is that that the basic emotion theory has the advantage of being a, you know, like a straight cause and effect theory, which is appealing to people because it's simple. And not that people are simple minded, but, you know, even I'm simple minded, right? I like when you you put something in and you get something out. So this readout model. Yes. So it's not surprising that it takes hold because the alternative is to think of these complex knots and to think about context and to think about and that's hard, especially when you're thinking about like political disagreement. I mean, I have a really hard time talking to people who just want to call Trump voters stupid, illogical, idiot morons, because I just won't do it. I agree with They're you. They're not. Right? They have to be doing something in their interest. And I'm sure that, that they have lots of ways in which they are making decisions that they feel are rational and logical. And they probably feel the same way about us. And I just don't think it. But even they, are, even then, very smart people who, who might even be on board with a critique of affect return to it and in, put in input, get out output model when they're trying to talk about something that they don't agree with. And I, so I'm not surprised that it's it's entrenched and hard to dislodge. Yes, I, I agree with everything you've said. And I could add that one, uh, one dimension of the position that I'm adopting, which puts a great emphasis on questions of intention and meaning, mm-hmm. um, is related to this question of identity. So, so the non-intentionalist position, I said, was uh, a non-intentionalist, questions of meaning aren't relevant, the body is important. Uh, that's the materialist component. And then there's this question of identity. Sure. Um, and therefore, it's what I feel, my identity, my feelings, rather than my arguments that matter. Well, there is a political wing to all of this that says identity has been, and questions of diversity have been a great diversion. Uh, and sure. one way to th- from thinking about economics and class and inequality and the sympathy is entirely for poor people. And what is trying to be articulated by my friends who make these arguments is that class is not the same as gender and race. Uh, mm. Class is a question of poverty. And as it were, no one wants to be poor. So we don't want to embrace, we might have nostalgia for our working class lives we grew up in, I don't know, a very poor uh, city like Glasgow, in a very poor working class area. We might be, I can even wax nostalgic about growing up in a house with no central heating, which I did, or no refrigerator. I can remember that fondly because I was fond of my, I'm fond of my family. But if I grew up in dire poverty, I would definitely rather not be poor. And so, there's a tremendous effort on the part of the friends of mine to articulate a solid economic argument about inequality and to never lose track of the fact that class is different from gender and race and that identity politics is great at covering up the issue of class and losing sight of it. And yeah, there was an example um, when Bernie Sanders said that white people don't understand what it's like to be poor. Do you remember that? It happened um, yes. maybe like two years ago. And 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 I understand he probably just got caught up. And, and this is the other problem with the readout model is that so much of what we measure, we measure as if when people speak, that automatically is exactly what they meant to say, or that yes. is somehow a window into their soul. But yes. language is a convention. And so people get caught up, they get stuck, they say something that they didn't mean to say. And we typically don't extend that benefit to 
Um, which, which I understand in some ways too, because language can also be the thing you use to lie and get around the truth. But he made this comment and he was using white in that case as a shorthand for all kinds of privileges. But of course yes. it was a huge mistake to make because there are deeply impoverished white people. And so they may have white privilege, but they don't have class privilege and we can't let those things seep together. I actually so agree with what you, what you've just said. I completely agree um, on that, on that point. And, and that I think gets us back to the book, which is that they're right, that, that one of the things that's challenging about this book is that it undermines easy explanations for why people do the things they do, which I think is great because I don't want easy explanations, but I can also understand why they might be desirable. And, and so one of the things you look at in this book are like tons of studies. Uh, is there any one in particular? Um, and we haven't even talked about some of the key theorists. We haven't talked about Sylvan Tompkins. Uh, do you want to look at maybe anything in particular from the book that you found very fascinating? Well, actually, maybe, you maybe said something slightly. It's very difficult to go into the weeds about certain experiments because of the yeah, I understand that detailed. Yeah. But I'm going to pick up on something else you just mentioned, which I think is very worth emphasizing. Great. Um, if you are an intentionalist, if you believe that making meaning is important, and if you believe that our behavior is characterized, human behavior, let's say, but also some animals, of course by our intentions, you also accept the idea that lying and dishonesty are intrinsic to the human condition. Oh, this is a good point. Yeah. Yeah. You don't believe, as the readout theory does, that under the right conditions, honesty will prevail, the truth will leak out. You know, uh, Paul Ekman has um, been very influential in um all sorts of federally funded, hugely expensive federally funded projects to install surveillance at airports based on the idea that you can train people to detect the emotional, as it were, behavior or threat of a would-be terrorist by looking at their faces. And it's a complete bust. There's a very interesting yes. congressional mm -hmm. report on showing that the results just aren't there. And that the reason that Ekman has supported all of that is because his theory basically says that the body doesn't lie. Under, I always stress, under the right conditions. Of course, when we're in public, we know how to behave. We teach children how to behave. They can't say something really rude to a person. They've got to learn to curb their speech in public and their behavior and their demeanor. But the fundamental theory of the basic emotions position is that under the right conditions, the body doesn't lie. It conveys the truth. And the fundamental position of the intentionalist position is that we are, in fact, strategic creatures through and through. And it doesn't mean that you can't trust somebody. You can learn the signs by very close attention over a length of time. What whether to believe your partner or not, let's say, or whether to believe your child. Though, in my experience, after, you know, you can still be wrong about somebody that you know very, very well. It's that mm -hmm. subtle. But the idea would be that people, in fact, I have a chapter that begins, it's about the question of dishonesty and, and the emotions And I begin with the famous philosopher Wittgenstein's query, what would it be like to live in a world where nobody lied? 
And that mm. my thought is that the basic emotion theory sort of imagine that, that there are ways in which you can figure out the deep truth about people. You can sort of catch them because the body doesn't ultimately doesn't lie. And the alternative position is that deception is natural. I mm. actually taught when my daughter was very young, um, I used to say to her, which was very little, I got eyes at the back of my head and I'm telling you it's bedtime <laughs> and I can see you, you know. And then uh-huh. at a certain point, quite early on, I realized I want to be sure she understands that's not true. So I said to her, Anna, I don't have eyes at the back of my head and I can't see through you. <laughs> and, you know, we know that children learn to lie and it's an incredibly important skill, I think. Sure, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it isn't always bad. Um, but the, as I say, the basic, so one of the other as it were, um, implications of this huge fundamental debate between the basic emotions theories, theorists on the one hand and the affect theorists on that same side and the intentionalist position is this question of lying and dishonesty and how strategic are we in our behaviors? Can you make a separation between my outward behavior and my inner feelings in the way that the basic emotion theorists want to, such that you could catch those inner feelings because we'll betray them by micro-movements of the face or by certain gestures and so on and so forth. And the alternative position is a much more, in a way, demanding one, which says, well, we will lie. People are strategic. And yes, we can you know, we can catch people lying when it's been on record that one day they said this and the next day they denied it. Of course, by their speech. But um, between intimate partners or friends, even there, there can always be a component where you don't trust them or you might not. You have to learn to trust people, right? That's Mm -hmm. a really important issue. And um, I think it's another reason why the basic emotion theory is so appealing, which is, well, we can really figure out what what people authentically are like. Deep down. Well, yeah, and I think what's fascinating about this too is that that inside-outside binary, because that's already problematic, right? That what's on the inside can somehow be read by what's on the outside. But right. then if you imagine that the inside is just a giant soup of contradiction, <laughs> which is how I think of people, <laughs> yes. then it becomes even more futile. And and I think that's another reason people like this, this anti-intention, this sort of like readout, I think, and I like that phrase from the book, I've used it a lot um, since, since reading it, but this readout theory is because it reinforces the idea that there is some kind of inner truth of people that we can get at that somehow will make us more certain. Yes. But you know, I can't count how many times per week I will play a speech for students, you know, smart, bright students. And I'll say, oh, what do you think? And then they will give me a bunch of cliches. And I think cliches are a great example in terms of where I come in as a rhetorician. And after a long conversation, they will realize that the cliches aren't exactly really all that's going on. But that doesn't mean they lied. It it just means they hadn't taken the time to even know the complexities of what they thought or felt about something, right? So they resort to sort of easy convenient explanations, but they're not lying or telling the truth. They have multiple complex reactions to something. And it's very hard to sort all that out, especially given that we're not taught to do that, right? We're not taught emotional management. We're not taught how to think through the complexities that we feel in response to things and make a decision. This is not like a life skill that most people get taught. So instead we just resort to like a, a readout model where people will just show their true colors if, if we learn to look hard enough for it or something like that. 
Yes, I, I so agree with that. And um, one of the virtues of a Freudian now very, you know, very minority position, but one of its mm-hmm. virtues historically was that it introduced the idea of conflict. And by right. that, I mean, not so much conflict between people as within you. I often right. used to yes. say, you know, I used to try to illustrate that to my students by saying, you know, somebody, a student comes to me and says, I, I, I'm going to quit my biology class because I can't stand the professor. I'm going to quit my chemistry class because I can't stand the professor. Turns out the student has a history of always claiming that she wants to be a doctor and she loves chemistry and biology, mm, yes, but she has walked yes. out on every single class. Yes. And you start to begin to think that something's going on here, some kind of what Freud would call projection or displacement yes. onto these professors of something that is inside her. And from a Freudian point of view, whatever it is that's going on, it's conflictual. She wants to be a doctor, but she doesn't. Right. And neither one is true or false. It just is what it is. It's a conflict. It it was not just a question of um, not true or false. Both are true because from Freud's point of view, the unconscious doesn't know contradiction. Right. It doesn't know negation. So I do want to be a doctor and I don't. And then Freud would say, oh, your father was a doctor? And then it will turn out that the this young person has identified with her father whom she loves and she also dislikes or hates. And if she could figure out and come to manage those emotions, that, that's the Freudian move, that those, right. whatever it is we think we're feeling in the mod- moment, in the modern real time, is very much a product of our earlier histories. That's the Freudian move par mm. excellence. You know, it's like you're, you're the product of your origins and yes. birth and Training. Right. But the idea of this conflict, I think, is a very useful model to think about. I emotions. think so, too. Yeah. Um, and it's very difficult to fit that kind of what we call dynamic model um, into a basic emotions picture because it's an additive one. The basic emotions is additive. It's like a soup. Um, and so you to get guilt, how would you imagine and theorize guilt? Well, you put in anger, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know, a little bit of shame. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, right. uh, etc. Um, and in fact, the basic emotion theories have a problem, I think, with so-called um, more uh, culturally coded emotions like guilt and shame, and yeah, the sort of self-conscious emotions. They, they, they. When one of the f- prime, you know, key figures in the early post-World War II history of the basic emotions theorist was a man called Sylvan Tompkins, and he included shame as one of the basic primary affects, as he called them. Um, and But very quickly, it's interesting, when he did the most pioneering studies that were hugely influential on Paul Ekman of trying to um, use posed expressions of the basic emotions to see how people responded to them, uh, whether they could identify them and so on, using a lot of very problematic techniques, so-called forced choice and things like that, um, he -hmm. didn't include shame. Hmm. And for a long time, shame was dropped from the basic emotions list. But Ekman has expanded the list so that in theory, my understanding is, well, it's sort of twofold. On theory, a lot of emotions are now included in the basic emotions list, well over eight or nine or ten. And in theory... 
they do have characteristic facial expressions and physiognomy and uh, physiology and autonomic reactions. But he also introduced this idea of family resemblances. So right. any mm-hmm. particular expression belongs to a family of expressions so that anger could be uh, represented by an array of expressions rather than one single iconic one, even though the ex- facial expressions that he standardized and coded are just a you know, single thing. You, know, you show an angry face to somebody. It's one of Ekman's faces and that person is getting a, a functional magnetic resonance imaging to see what parts of the brain are activated. You use one of those things. But in theory, there are many, many of those pictures for anger and many for happiness and many right. for yes. etc. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting fact. Well, I well, think we've covered a lot. What do you think? Well, I, I was actually just going to add, in addition to, because I'm always interested in kind of, n- not exactly the cause, but you, the comment you made about the way that science has now been sort of en- enmeshed in a giant security industrial complex is really important because it's trying to, it starts to account for why some of this stuff is so hard to un- untrench. And one of the things too, is the textbook industry really, really relies on these emotion, these readout emotions, because they make very convenient textbook chapters, right? Students can study the six-based emotions. They can look at the faces that go with them. They can memorize their definitions. It's very easy to test. It's very easy to teach. And so I can't find an interpersonal communication textbook that does not repeat many of the problematic research that you, and there's no competing, right? They don't talk about Fridland and they don't talk about how this could be a problem. And there's no complexity to the discussion. And I've gotten to the point where, and not that I use a textbook really anymore anyway, but when textbook reps bring me these sample textbooks, I say to them, I won't buy a textbook that has a one-dimensional view of emotion research. Very interesting. I mean, well, you know, we're living at a moment in the psychological sciences where we're experiencing what's called a replication crisis some of the most iconic experiments in psychology of the last 30 years or so have failed to replicate. And it's an enormous crisis. And um, one of the experiments that Fridland offers a very fascinating dismantling of, one of the iconic experiments by Ekman and his colleague Friesen, Wallace Friesen, it involves a comparison. I won't go into the details. They're too complicated, frankly. Um, I can't yes. even hold them all in my head uh, now. I know. It's, it's, it's a challenge, yeah. It's a challenge. But it involved comparing the facial responses to watching so-called um, trauma movie, um, short clips of movies that involved being traumatic scenes of woodcutting injuries and things like that. Comparing the facial movements of American students watching them when they were being um, recorded with a hidden camera to uh, comparing them to Japanese students. And the claim Mm, was that the reactions were different, but also the same. They were the same in the sense that both students, sets of students um, showed a certain kind of shock and dislike of what they were looking at, but that when the graduate student entered the room, actually a a person, a graduate student pretending to be an experimenter with a white coat and all of that good stuff, um, the Japanese showed many more polite smiles Mm. because that was their culture to cover over the authentic 
response, which had been one of a kind of horror, let's say. Um, and I won't go into the weeds on this one, but um, it's not at all clear at all that that experiment proved its point. In fact, Fridland conducts this masterful de demolition of the experiment and the ways it's been reported, poorly reported, mis misleadingly reported, and basically dismantles it completely. Um, and so these experiments, on the one hand, they do sound great. As you say, they can make their way into textbooks so conveniently with little pictures and the like. But when looked up close, they don't stand uh, withstand scrutiny. That's my view of the matter. And it's a fascinating fact. It is another fascinating fact, along with the question of who votes for whom and why, is why this particular model has been so successful. I try to address that in my book. Um, I'm still a bit puzzled by the fact that even very smart people who understand how weak the evidence is still cling to formulations that I myself think are mistaken. I try to talk about that in my book too. So it's a sort of area that is still a bit puzzling. Why this model, why in particular the basic emotions model is so popular, why the affect theory is so popular in spite of what I like to think of as well-argued critiques, <laughs> namely of the kind I've offered, and, and why um, even people who understand that the basic emotion theory, let's say, is wrong in its all the details, nevertheless find it very difficult to come up within science with a strategy for moving forward on the study of the emotions that doesn't a strategy that doesn't make some rather deep, in my opinion, deep errors in how the emotion they think about the emotions. I could not agree more. Um, unfortunately is just as always the case when such a fascinating author joins us on New Books Network. We have come up on time. Thank you again so much, Dr. Lays, uh, for joining us today. Thank you as well to everyone at home listening in or in your car or on your walk, wherever you may be. Uh, once again, I have been speaking with Dr. Ruth Lays, author of The Ascent of Affect, Genealogy and Critique, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2017. As always, I'd like to thank the University of Chicago Press and all of the university presses who helps support New Books Network. If you've enjoyed learning about the Ascent of Affect, rest assured that we have barely skimmed the tip of the iceberg. It's a wonderful read and one that I recommend to anyone interested in the relationship between the sciences and the humanities. Even if you don't wish to pick up a copy for yourself, consider picking up a copy to donate to your local library so that everyone has access to Dr. Lay's work. Or, you know, with budgets being what they are, you can also contact your library and request that they purchase a copy of the book for circulation. Thank you again to Dr. Lays and all of the New Books Network listeners. Take care and we will talk to you soon. 